WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline, managing editor of a publication called Outdoor News, and uh, honored to be here on WCCO every Sunday at 5 p.m. Uh, Sunday, January 21st. We are officially one month past the winter solstice. Uh, and that means the days are starting to get a little bit longer. And if you listen to Susie Jones there uh, during the news break, you know it's going to be getting warmer in the coming weeks. Felt a little warmer out there today. That wind was cold, even though it was coming from the south, but it was bringing some warmer temperatures. Uh, and uh, yeah, I you know looking at my uh, my weather app like everybody else does, seeing a lot of days in the mid to high 30s, maybe even a 40 next week. Uh, any snow we've got, I got to think, is going to be gone. Uh, we're not going to be losing ice in these conditions, I don't think. I mean, it's going to be getting into the 20s and the teens overnight, but I'm not sure we're going to be making a whole lot. I I talked to a number of people late this past week who know a lot about ice conditions who were a little concerned that, you know, this cold snap that we had that we're coming out of, you know, everybody just assumed, hey, uh, off we go. And there were probably still a lot of spots with not you know with ice, but you know not enough to support vehicles, uh, especially large vehicles, as folks as folks might uh, expect. So continue to please be careful out there, especially as I say we've got warmer temperatures coming, and and the days that are getting longer. Uh, I know everybody uh, you know wants to have some sort of some sort of uh, quality ice fishing season, and they're getting it up north, but in the central and uh, southern part of the state, we got to remain uh, extra vigilant. Uh, we've got a uh, fun show coming at you. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about the, there's a number of news items cooking. The DNR Roundtable was this past Friday. I was there all day. A number of headlines came out of that. Uh, in uh, about 10 minutes or so, I'm actually going to go to have an Iowa guest. If you've listened to the show, you know that I've uh, been a little concerned about wild turkey populations. Not so much in Minnesota, but certainly in other some of our uh, adjacent states where we're seeing wild turkey populations declining a little bit and you know the wild turkey is held up as a is a great success story all over the place right and yet the dirty little secret is turkey numbers are declining in parts of the country and and there's a research study in iowa to try to understand what's going on with that i was visiting my son at the u of m yesterday and and you know they got those wild turkeys walking around campus. Man, they look big this time of year, don't they? They're all they fluff up their feathers to stay warm, and they look huge. And uh, I think we take for granted when we see that that the turkey populations must be doing great everywhere, but uh, they're they're not. And we're going to talk about that a little bit at the bottom of the hour. Representative Rick Hansen, he is a member of the state House of Representatives, uh, chair of the Environment Committee in the House, I believe, and he's. Uh, one of the few legislators that's really got his finger on the pulse of what's cooking uh, cooking with outdoor conservation issues. We'll talk to him a little bit. I saw him at the roundtable briefly a couple days ago. We'll probably touch base on that. But we'll do a little preview of what he thinks some of the priorities are for environment and conservation issues during this uh, 2024 legislative session, which kicks off uh, in uh, less than a month, about three weeks away, I believe. So we will talk to him about that. Uh, we had, a, like I say, some big stories break. Uh, again, if you've listened to the show, you know I've talked a lot about the Asian carp issue. Uh, the Minnesota DNR issued its Asian carp plan. It's it's update to its Asian carp plan on Thursday. You know, I don't think it was a big topic at the roundtable. I, I heard a little bit of chatter, but I don't think they devoted a lot of time to it. Uh, we had a story at OutdoorNews.com about it. Of course, every other news source in the state also did. 
Uh, it's um, you know when when it first came out, I thought, well, the DNR is looking pretty aggressive here on this. The more I got into it, the more I got into the you know the the, the small print. It's like, well, maybe not quite as aggressive as I would like. Uh, there, you know, some components of it. They're definitely talking about increased tracking and tagging of carp, which you know, by all metrics, would suggest has been very successful, that that's working, uh, you know, that they, they're tagging these carp, they're finding out where they're going, and they're getting pretty good, I think, at targeting uh, these these fish and, and, you know, netting them all at once, getting a lot of them out. I, I guess we're not, we can't be positive that they're getting, quote-unquote, all of them, but they're getting a, a good chunk of them, and, and they're going to do more of that. So that's a good thing. Um other topic, uh, other components they're going to advocate for a deterrent at Lock and Dam 17 down in Keokuk, Iowa. We know there's reproduction evasion carp happening down there. Obviously, that's not in the Minnesota DNR's jurisdiction, but uh, I mean, presumably they can they can uh, lobby for it, advocate for it. I don't know, maybe even help fund it. Uh, but we know, uh, you know, that's for sure where reproduction of of, the, of these species is occurring. They've got some other components in here talking about more modeling. Uh, they call it flu egg modeling to predict, predict potential carp spawning locations, right? If you, if you can predict where these carp are going to spawn, you can get to them before they they do unleash a bounty of uh, of eggs that becomes a new baby carp and ultimately big carp. There's also... Uh, <sighs> A talk of a bounty, you know, uh, getting uh, especially commercial fishermen involved in, you know, if they catch these fish, getting paid to to remove them. Uh, you know, some of us have asked, well, why not pay the general public a bounty on these things? Uh, I, I suppose you got to be careful, there, right? There are people that would go down to the Illinois River and capture huge nets full of these things and drive them up and say, hey, I want my bounty on these things. So, it sounds like that's a ways out, even for commercial folks. That's not like something they're going to immediately uh, begin, but it's on the table, and I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, maybe the more controversial part of this is should the DNR install some sort of barrier or deterrence, especially at, uh, at what's being called LD5, Lock and Dam 5, uh, down Winona Way. Uh, again, the plan's still talking about uh, – considering the feasibility and design for installing these things, not only at, at potentially four and five, but uh, maybe some other dams uh, upriver. There's no money for it, though. Uh, Kate, we asked um, the uh, the head of the Ecological Services Division, Katie Smith, about that, and she said the DNR does not have any of that money in its 2024 budget. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's just a talking point still, at, right, if, if there's no money for it. Um, you know, and the DNR is going to get beat up for that. They have been beat up for it. I've beaten them up for it a little bit. It, it is a tough issue, right? Because if the thing doesn't work, you know, in a year and it costs, I don't know, $15 million to install and it doesn't work in four or five years, everyone's going to blame the DNR, right? It's going to be a bridge to nowhere kind of situation. So, you know, I understand why they're cautious about it. It's a big chunk of money for something that we're not sure is going to work. The flip side is, what are our other, you know, alternatives? What are the other solutions? You know, one of them is is this this heavy pressure we're putting in and netting them and tracking them, which seems to be showing some promising signs. It's just I don't know if ultimately if these things really explode, if those efforts are going to going to keep up with the uh, with the Asian carp issue, uh, the problem that it could really uh, become. And, and clearly, these things are more than willing to move up river and and you know maybe even potentially reproduce. So. Uh, 
But anyway, we'll read outdoor news. We're going to have more details. I'm sure we will opine on that uh, more later as we get uh, deeper into 2024. Lots of other things to talk about from the roundtable. i got a whole list of bullet points here that I'm not getting to today, uh, but perhaps I will later in the show with uh, Representative Rick Hansen as well as in my final segment. So let's get in a break right now. Uh, stick around. We're going to talk with Dan Kaminsky from the Iowa DNR about a wild turkey story when we return. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. On this Sunday, January 21st, 2024, I am Rob Jerisline, managing editor publisher of a little newspaper called Outdoor News. I want to swing a little south of the border here in our next segment and talk about a wild turkey research study that's occurring down in Iowa. After this segment, please stay tuned. I want to talk uh, about the DNR Roundtable and the outlook for the 2024 legislative session with Rick Hansen, a state legislator from the Southeast Metro. Yeah, as I alluded to, I saw an interesting press release out of Iowa from the Iowa DNR about some wild turkey research cooking down there. And a gentleman from the Iowa DNR is joining me now. His name is Dan Kaminsky. He's a wildlife research biologist with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Thanks so much for joining the broadcast, Dan. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me, Rob. This is an an issue that I have been talking about a little bit up here in Minnesota. I kind of feel like it's fallen on deaf ears a bit in in this state because I, I think our turkey populations are holding up pretty well. But I'm seeing these headlines from other states to our south, uh, Iowa, Kansas, other portions of the country where there's a little bit of a disturbing trend. After years and years of talking about expanding turkey populations, wild turkey populations around the country, uh, it seems like I'm hearing more about what's going on with turkeys. Are, are wild turkey populations decreasing a little bit? Have I summarized that fairly? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Turkeys were doing so well for so many decades. People were harvesting a lot of birds. Just kind of the scientific community ended up taking a hands-off approach with turkeys, and they were doing well. And and now kind of we're we're seeing that we're getting to a point where maybe turkey populations are in decline. And and when we look at some of the states, Indiana's got some poult to hen surveys that go back to the '90s. Missouri goes they have their survey goes back to 1959. And when we look at some of these longer-term uh, poult surveys we see a declining trend. And, and it looks like that pulp production probably has been declining since the late 80s. We're just maybe now starting to see some of that stuff play out in the harvest. Some states have made their seasons a little more restrictive, uh, maybe not allowing hen harvest in the spring anymore. Uh, we had some states who were allowing hunters to take you know, maybe a couple birds, and now they're just restricting it to one. Has Iowa made any sort of changes to its seasons as a result of some of these concerns? We have not. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call our harvest uh, particularly liberal. We do allow um, hunters, if they want to, to harvest two toms or males in the spring. As far as hen harvest goes, we do still allow it in the fall. We might shoot 400 birds total in the fall, and half of that's going to be females. And so, you know, with 99 counties, 200 birds, you know, we're really only averaging a couple hens per county and <laughs> yeah. so it's it's not a major component of our harvest but certainly something that a lot of other states are looking at so you've got a 10-year study underway 
Uh, and what, what are you in about a year two? And, you know, specifically, can you tell me what you're looking at? Uh, you're looking at poult survival, hen survival, some of those facets of, uh, of wild turkey management? Yeah, we're primarily focused on the female component of, of turkey population. So we're, we're in every winter we go out, we trap turkeys, we put transmitters uh, on the females and, and the juveniles. What we're trying to look at is one, the nesting. So um, how many birds are laying nest? How many of those nests survive of the pulse that sur- uh, of the eggs that hatch? How many of those pulse survive into fall? So we're looking at some of that kind of what we call like the fecundity information. We're looking at hen survival. We know that some of this, some of these numbers have changed since the last time we did research in the '90s. So you know what? How many hens are surviving uh, each year? We are looking at some disease information. So each of the hens uh, that we capture in the winter, we pull blood off of them. Particularly, we're interested in a disease called lymphoproliferative disease virus. It's something that's new to the to North America. And then ultimately, we'll build a population model with all the information that we're collecting. And, and that's really going to be the nuts and bolts where we can start playing with some of these population demographics, mortality, poult survival, hen survival, nest success, and try to figure out what we can do to stabilize declines and maybe start to improve them. I want to circle back on a couple points. First, I'm not going to try to pronounce this virus. We'll call it LPDV. Uh, your release says it was first detected in North America in 2009 in Arkansas. Did this come from the domestic poultry industry? And, and are we seeing it in some places in wild turkeys? It's the first I've ever heard of it uh, in, in this press release. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty novel disease to us. So it it, it was historically a poultry disease from maybe the Middle East or, or Europe. Uh, in 2009, they detected it in Arkansas for the first time, and since then, it's spread across North America. We did a study with Iowa State University a few years back, and we detected it statewide. Not all of our counties had great great harvest numbers to pull birds, but we we sampled 95 counties and we found it statewide. So. In wild, bir- in wild birds we're talking here, Dan. Yeah, wild uh, hunter harvested birds. So w- the concern is that in the poultry industry, the disease is 100% fatal. So with adult birds that get it, they'll ultimately develop a, in, maybe a, internal lesions, tumors, cancer, that sort of thing, and will ultimately die. Uh, from the poults, once they contract it, poults are chicks, they'll die within six weeks. And what we don't know is how, if that, kind of same behavior occurs in wild birds. How, how do hens transmit it to their poults? And if the poults are come to that in, in wild populations, the same. Well, those are some disturbing numbers you just laid out there. And like I say, that's, that's new to me. Do you think that this is a, a factor? Or you, again, you think it's just maybe one of a, of a bunch of contributing factors? So we have four study areas and in total, it's about 20% of our birds that have tested positive for it. So it's a wow. fairly large number. Uh, and that kind of varies maybe around 15 to 30% by site. So if it does act the same in wild birds, it probably does have, uh, have an impact on turkeys. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Jerislein. We are chatting with Dan Kaminsky, an Iowa DNR wildlife research specialist, about a 10-year study they've got cooking down there Looking at what's going on with wild turkeys, why do wild turkey numbers seem to be declining, uh, maybe even in trouble in some areas? There's some other factors you folks are looking at, too, that that jumped out at me in in the press release that you folks issued last week. Talking a little bit about 
is the landscape have the same carrying capacity that maybe it did when these turkey populations were reintroduced and were just exploding, what, 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, even in Iowa? Turtle into that for me a little bit, Dan. What, what are some of those concerns? Yeah, the landscape, it's not the same that it was when the populations were booming in through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We started reintroducing turkeys in the 60s, and they pretty well exponentially grew through the uh, 70s and 80s. And agriculture has changed. Equipment has gotten more more efficient at pulling some, uh, grain off the landscape, so there's maybe less waste grain that birds uh, and other wildlife use. We have lost a lot of grassland in the last 20, 25 years. And in grasslands, coarse, like just really dense early successional habitats are really prime for not only nesting, but also for forage for poults, for, for raising uh, the baby turkeys. And then uh, just the um, everything else that, uh, that goes along with the landscape change. I mean, uh, just the forest maturation, you know, if, if our forests are, have a denser canopy, it, you know, can relate to less understory and maybe less um, brooding or nesting habitat in the understory makes it more open, um, open for them. So there's just a lot of factors that could play in the landscape and just, it's, it's just really hard to say, you know, we again we haven't been really studying turkeys in the last twenty five years as a as a community, and so um, you know how how some of these factors play in. You know, we're trying to figure that out right now. Quick editorial comment from me: I've been ranting about the loss of grasslands in terms of what it means for deer. Uh, you know, in addition to turkeys and and the, the whole pollinator thing that plays into. I mean, pollinators really key insects important for for turkey food. Tell us a little bit about the study. So basically, you're you're putting some transmitters on a bunch of hens. Is that right? Yeah, so each winter we we go out. So we did a, our first year in 2021. That was just a pilot year. We marked 24 birds in southeast Iowa, and we've since expanded that to four study areas. Uh, so the last two years we've gone out, and, and we're getting ready to go out again right now. So we'll, we'll mark hens. Uh, we're trying to maintain about a, po- a study population of about 100 birds, maybe about 25 birds per, per area. What we want to do is that we'll, we'll track their survival through the course of their life with these transmitters and we're putting GPS transmitters on them. So it's kind of a passive way that we can uh, track birds is that we're collecting satellite locations on them and then they'll just upload the, uh, the information to the satellites, send it to us over the internet. And so we can really almost monitor these birds in near real time beyond just getting the uh, annual survival We'll be able to track them uh, starting in April uh, with really fine locational information to start tracking nesting with them. And so that's really where we're, we're, we're trying to target right now is just being able to fe- uh, effectively monitor their nesting when they start laying, when they start uh, incubating. If a nest fails, we want to be able to go in promptly and recover the nest. Sounds like you got a lot of staff and a lot of partners working on this too. I, I've just got a moment left here, but I presume you'd like to recognize some of, them, some of them. National Wild Turkey Federation is involved? We do. We do work with a lot of partners. I mean, just internally um, at our four management units, we're probably working with 20 staff at uh, at all of our units. And so like, and they're the ones that really do the bulk of the heavy lifting when it comes to trapping. So they're the ones out there baiting right now. They're the ones out there setting traps, sitting on, on traps when, you know, uh, 14 hour days if when we try to trap. So and then beyond that, uh, we've worked with Iowa State University with the uh, Cooperative Fish and Wildlife research unit there to get funding to uh, purchase transmitters in the first year of the study. 
the state and national NWTF, they've given us some uh, grants to do some of our research. And then uh, uh, Turkeys for Tomorrow has given us some grants as well. And so it, it really is a partnership. We're working with Luther College to do some uh, genetic work up in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, we're working with the um, uh, USDA lab out in Fort Collins with uh, with some of that work as well. So there's there's a lot of people involved for sure. And you're in, what, year two of this? So what should I do, Dan? Get back in eight years and see what uh, the conclusions are? Yeah, you know, this this was originally going to be a two- or three-year study. And, uh, it, we, you know, just we kind of looked at the, the at, at some of those preliminary numbers, and we, and we figured this needs to be a longer-term thing. And so, yeah, we're going into our third capture year here, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue this on for another seven or eight years for sure, yeah. Well, I, I tip my hat to the Iowa DNR for tackling this study. I think it's really important. Uh, it's going to be some important data, not only for Iowa, but Minnesota and a lot of other states, too. So thank you for the study, and thanks for joining me on the broadcast, Dan. Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate your time today, Rob. That was Dan Kaminsky, a wildlife research biologist from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. We appreciate him joining us. Please stick around. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Jerisline. We are here until the top of the hour on this Sunday, January 21st. Uh, when I leave, stick around. It's uh, 6 p.m., My Life of Crime with Aaron Moriarty. And then uh, from 7 to 9, the Sunday night show, uh, Jimmy Francis in uh, Live and Local, taking care of business. I want to jump in with my next guest quickly. There's a lot to talk about. Representative Rick Hansen hails from South St. Paul. And he is, uh, remind me, Rick, you are the chair of the House Environment and Natural Resources Committee. Do I have that right? Uh, I think it's longer than that, but uh, <laughs> finance and natural resources, finances, and policy. But uh, okay. you got the gist of it. So. Gotcha. I always forget the money part, which is kind of important, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Rick, thanks a lot for, for joining us with this. The legislative session kicks off here, what, about three weeks out? February 12th, yes. F- February 12th. And I want to talk a little bit about preview what you think some of the priorities are for outdoor topics uh, when that kicks off. But uh, before we do, let's talk about the roundtable. I did see you there. I didn't get a chance to talk to you very long. Uh, DNR Roundtable been going on a long time. There's, uh, I saw Dennis Anderson uh, questioning whether we should continue to do it, if it's worth the expense. Uh, my quick take is uh, I, I like the Roundtable. I think it's a good event. Uh, I'm not, you know, If I were in charge of the agenda, there would be some things that would probably be different. But overall, I think uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Roundtable. I don't want it to go away. Do you, uh, you want to offer your quick opinion? I would agree. You know, Over the years, and Rob, you've been probably going to these as long as I have, you know, they've changed. <clears throat> it used to be a couple-day affair. Uh, the makeup of the peop- of the presenters as well as the participants has changed, and I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, actually, I, I wish some of the other agencies would have this type of engagement uh, where, where the public can come in and provide comment. Um, so I think, you know, there's always disagreement on uh, which subject is most important. But I think it's valuable, and I, I think it should be replicated. Uh, you know, I've always pushed to have it be more open, not just invite. Uh, try to have more Minnesotans involved because I think the more public engagement we have, the stronger the product is when there's decisions made. You know, a good measuring stick for an event like the roundtable and trying to determine if it's worthwhile is when you talk to people from other states. And occasionally there will be visitors from other states. There will be guest speakers at the roundtable table. And to a person, and, and it, it, you know, 
we're talking some pretty hardcore hook and bullet guys too that have been there. They all say, you know, my home state doesn't have this. This is great. You guys are lucky to have this event. Uh, we need to see events like this in other states. So uh, that's always a good reminder when I hear that from a visitor you know, from another state who who says, "Yeah, hey, this roundtable is is pretty cool." Anything jump out at you, uh, Rick, uh, during your time uh, at, at the event on Friday that struck you as newsworthy or uh, really important that uh, that you'd share with listeners today? Well, just on that on that point about other states, I've I've had contact since the roundtable texts and messages come in saying, "I wish we could do this in our state." Uh, mm-hmm. You are you are different. So. Um, just seeing the social media that comes there. And, you know, I think uh, maybe a small, subtle uh, provision is the native fish discussion. And, you know, the work that Minnesota has done has uh, brought uh, a world-renowned scientist to the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Solomon David, and he was there. You know, so I think good work is recognized and draws additional talent. In terms of policy, I think the carp uh, discussion, you know, which I think you were in there during that, um, was interesting. You know, the challenge between this year and last year is uh, we do not have uh, uh, the money for doing a lot of things. Uh, We've been told, you know, that there's not going to be as much cash uh, that is available and certain monies have certain strings around it. I think there's somewhat of a disagreement among interests uh, as to what the actual report says. What I hear in the report is there's a lot of work to do. There is no silver bullet for silver carp. Uh, There is um, a variety of methods, but uh, there's not one one particular solution. And I didn't hear a ringing endorsement for a barrier at lock and dam number five from the agency. I did hear that from uh, some of the interests. Yeah, friends of the Mississippi River, other groups out there have been advocating pretty strongly for that. I, I, you know, I've generally been a supporter of it. I think, in generally, the outdoor media has supported it. I was saying earlier that I understand, you know, the DNR is somewhat reluctant because uh, they're going to be left holding the bag if the thing doesn't work. And I, I you know, I, I'm practical enough to understand that. Uh, but yeah, well, we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, the invasive carp issue uh, throughout 2024 and unfortunately beyond. Uh, hey, jumping ahead uh, up to the legislative session, any uh, you know personal priorities for Rick Hansen as we as we get into this year's session? Like you say, there's not as much cash to go around this year. We we do have a state budget surplus, but I don't sense the governor's in a big hurry to spend all of that like a kid in a candy store. Um, what what what's your quick take? What are where are going to be your priorities as we uh, as we kick off the session, Rick? Well, the first priority is going to be passing the uh, LCCMR recommendations. Uh, for the Environmental Trust Fund. Uh, We have voted to put that on the ballot for reauthorization uh, uh, this fall. Uh, We have, legislators have tried very hard in the last two to three years to right the ship uh, of what has frankly been a very dysfunctional process. uh, And I believe that we have done that. Uh, We've made some changes uh, to the LCCMR and how it works in terms of procedures. And we have a recommendation. And so when we have a recommendation projects that have been well vetted uh we want to bring that to the to the uh, respective committees and hopefully can get that to the floor in both houses and pass it to demonstrate to minnesotans that when they vote this fall uh they're voting for a functioning process that can deliver good outcomes for minnesotans 
I, you know, Rick, I think there's a lot of folks that don't even realize that that will be on the ballot this fall. I talked to one gentleman at the roundtable. He's like, we got to get that back on the ballot. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the legislature did pass that in the 2023 session. So we'll, voters will have a chance to reauthorize that this fall. And that's great news. Uh, we got, But we definitely have a lot of work to do to get the word out when I'm bumping into people at the roundtable who are kind of in the outdoor business who don't even realize it's on the ballot. Uh, already some murmurs, you know, among some of my outdoor cohort, Rick, that, uh, you know, we're only 10 years out from having to renew legacy. And uh, that that's going to be a really important one to start thinking about and getting mobilized for. Well, and I, I think that brings up the next priority, and it's not so much on the outdoor side, of it, but it's on the clean water side. Uh, the issue of nitrates in southeastern Minnesota, mm, uh, but it's yes. not just in southeastern Minnesota. Um, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that the voters authorized, and we're not seeing much progress. In fact, you know, we've had a petition to EPA uh, saying that we've got to provide uh, alternative drinking water. We've got a public health crisis with high nitrates. And, you know, the, that particular issue, I, money is not enough. How you spend the money is important, but also responsibility and accountability is important. And uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion about that, I think, from the outdoor side. You're also dealing with the trout uh, area. Uh, you're dealing with uh, fragile ecosystems that are very diverse uh, in terms of their biodiversity. Uh, trout is one issue, but turkeys and deer uh, also are involved in this mix. So what happens to the water and what happens to the air uh, has an impact on, on the fish and game and the wildlife that we appreciate. So I think, you know, and when I'm looking at the timeline, I see trying to move on. LCCMR, so that doesn't get hung up later on and spending a great deal of time on this clean water issue, which is going to be in multiple committees. I mean, it may be in my committee, uh, the Legacy Committee, Health Committee, um, and the Ag Committee, obviously. So I think there'll be a lot of work on that. Um, in addition, even with the spending last year, I think we're going to be looking at how are things working you know, we, we did quite a bit of massive reform on chronic waste and disease. How is that working? Um, I think Emerald Ash Borer uh, is not going away. The demand is still there. How do we uh, try to respond to that? Uh, as well as members are going to come, you know, every legislator can introduce a bill or bills, and I expect we're going to see a lot. We're chatting with Representative Rick Hansen, a really key legislator in the in the state House of Representatives on conservation and environmental issues. We've got just a couple minutes left, Rick. I got to ask you some policy questions. Let's face it, listeners, and we 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 love all the fun little unique policy stuff. Uh, maybe you have some you want to chat about, but real quick, do you think rifles in Southern Minnesota is going to come back up? I don't know where you've fallen on that issue. Uh, it, I think it came fairly close last year until we had some legislators in the Senate that were suggesting, well, we want to exempt our county. And I, I think most people agree that's a bad idea. We either need to do it all or none. Uh, do you expect that to at least uh, pop back up this year? Um, there are issues that come back every year. Uh, you know, sometimes they're a floor amendment. Uh, and so I, I expect it'll be back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I expect that will be back. Uh, you know, I expect we'll see um, uh, the wolf hunt as a floor amendment. Uh, I expect we'll see 
a number of these things with and when you have razor thin margins of control in both the House and the Senate, um, you know, it, it a number of things that may not have been thought um, would be heard uh, suddenly uh, become in front of us. And so that doesn't necessarily mean they'll pass or become law, but uh, uh, we've had 68 new members who uh, last year who went through an amazing process and they're, they're gearing up for more. Uh, hey, Rick, real quick, crossbows. Uh, you know, I'm not thrilled with how that went through. I really, you know, however you feel about crossbows, I wish there had just been a separate license so we could we, we could measure the metrics a little bit better on how many people are buying these and how many people are using them. Maybe even charge folks a little bit more to use a crossbow. Uh, is that just a personal beef I'm going to have to deal with? Is there any chatter of creating a separate uh, crossbow license? Uh, the legislature obviously has the power to do that, right? Uh, they could. Uh, so what happened there last year, kind of like I mentioned, is, you know, if we get into a conference committee and if the House has 100 uh, items and the Senate has 20, uh, it's hard to have um, the, the House has to take some Senate provisions. And so I think when we look at, I mentioned, we look at going back at how are things working, um, I'm sure there's going to be discussion on crossbows. Whether it makes you super happy or not, I don't know. But I, it sounds like you want to have the discussion rather than and the outcome. Um, and I'm sure there are folks who agree with you. I've heard, I've heard from them. But um, I think I've also heard from you know a, a lot of new people that have come into hunting, uh, oh, yeah. and particularly with more a more diverse uh, crowd. And we keep hearing about how we don't we're losing hunters and. Hey, we've got a bunch of new people coming in, and uh, ooh, this is how they want to participate. And you know, I I like how I hunt, and I like how I, I fish. That may be different than how you do it. Um, I think that's the beauty of enjoying the outdoors. It's an individualized experience, and I can't um, I can't make everybody do it the way I want to. Right? That, yeah. That's but providing that opportunity. You know, we're seeing a response. I, I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, take a look at how, how many new folks have come in. And the legislature doesn't do enough of evaluation. We do a lot of, of uh, uh, rehashing until something finally happens. But after we've done something, it's, uh, it's hard to go and look back. And I think we've got to do more of that to make good products. Yeah, on the crossbow thing, hey, I, I don't think we're. I think we're not going to be able to limit it again during the archery season. But it just seemed like an opportunity to get more data, to your point, and also maybe squeeze a few bucks out of people when we're going to liberalize a hunt this much. Hey, let's let's get a, a license and and um, well, you know, some more like dollars for natural resources. Rick, we are out of time. I, I appreciate you calling in. Give me a good long segment. I suspect we'll chat with you more as the session unfolds. Happy to be here, and uh, uh, folks should feel free to contact their legislators. It's uh, This is how the system works. Contact us. Good advice. Enjoy this warmer weather this week, and good luck with the uh, session kicking off in just a few weeks, Rick. Thank you. Representative Rick Hansen from South St. Paul, I appreciate him calling into WCCO Outdoors for a few minutes. Why don't we break, and I'll have some closing thoughts, and we will wrap up this week's broadcast. I'm Rob Dreesline, WCCO Outdoors. Final segment, everybody. Just a couple minutes left of WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Jerisline. Some closing thoughts uh, for this week's show. Uh, again, the DNR Roundtable was this past Friday. I spent uh, the whole day there. 
some some good content to check out this week's outdoor news really for a lot more details. Uh, a couple of things they opened up with a youth panel uh, for their plenary session, and and you know some of the topics were well, I think it was climate change, which by definition is kind of a twenty thousand foot topic. But I will say I was very impressed with the young people they brought up there. Uh, they had one little gal from Prior Lake High School, and, and she was talking, and I, I I did a double take on her bio when I saw she was still in high school. I thought she was like a grad student or something. This, this uh, gal was so articulate. Uh, that's the sort of thing that gives you hope for the future <laughs> when you see young people, uh, our future future leaders out there, uh, some some really smart folks coming up. Uh, and so so that's uh, that was a real positive item for a cynical person like myself. Uh, one quick thing, you know what? There's a bass proposal brewing. I'm probably going to write about that in my column this week, talking about uh, extending the basically the catch and release bass, bass season, basically not closing it at the end of February, keeping that bass season open on you know through the walleye opener uh, and of course the bass season opens with the walleye season now catch and release only until the regular bass opener that used to be closed uh, so that that might be somewhat controversial but that'll be a topic that uh, we'll be breaking down and talking about it won't be this year probably won't even be in 2025 it may not be till 2026 but uh, I guess there's a citizens bass working group that made a proposal on that topic. So a lot of bass folks out there, you know, once the season closes in February, you can't even target bass, right, even for catch and release. This would make kind of allow a catch and release season for bass. Uh, again, I want to be clear, not uh, not this year, folks. Uh, we'll keep you posted on next year. Well, hey, I'm out of time. Like I say, uh, please stay tuned. Uh, we got My Life of Crime with Aaron Moriarty coming at you next. I appreciate my guests, all the listeners who joined us. I hope everybody has a great week out of doors. I am Rob Dreesline signing off for WCCO Outdoors.